Edward was just a little boy when he was switched from regular classes to special ed. It was kindergarten, and he viewed the move as a big step up. I thought it was cool because when you think of the word special, meaning like special, you know, like good, a good thing. Yeah. And like with my name being Edward, I thought it was kind of built for me. Like Ed meant you. Yeah. He was Ed. Of course he was going to special ed. And he didn't really figure out what special ed classes really meant for years until one day in junior high school, riding the school bus. And like one of the, one of my um, friends who was like younger than me and in the bus asked me to help him with his homework. And I noticed he had harder homework than we did. Why? What do you remember about his homework? Like he was doing like, I think it was um, timetables and division type things. Mm-hmm. And ours was like addition and subtraction still. And we were a great couple grades higher than he was. And the the spelling words were like, they looked like high schoolers would have a spelling word kind of thing, like forbidden and probably some more words harder than that. Yeah. At the time now. Like the word forbidden. Uh-huh. And, and what were you guys doing? Cow, sheep, sleep. It kind of got me mad, and I just thought my—I just kind of thought we were all like regular. And then that day, I saw the, the kind of like a divider kind of thing. I would think that that would be very hard. Well, yeah, because you, you kind of think of yourself as like regular until like these teachers and people of high authority are telling you you're not the same as everybody else. So you have to like figure out, okay, so why am I different? A lot of kids in junior high school and high school feel different. But to be told, no, it's not your imagination, you are different, this moment is something a lot of kids in special ed get to at some point or another. A shocking moment of understanding that they are not the same as other kids. And that everybody else knew that long ago. They knew it when they didn't. We were doing a project in first grade, uh, putting snowmen actually where you had to put, like, cut out objects, like, cut out circles and put it on there and put stuff on it. Holly is a high school student in Chicago. She's 18. And I was doing that, and I didn't, I didn't cut well, and I accidentally unscrewed the top of the glue, and it spilled all over. So I had to clean it up, and then she put me in the corner and yelled at me. It was really embarrassing. Everybody was laughing. It was kind of hard. So that's, like, the only story I really remember. I guess she thought I was stupid in some way. I felt bad about myself at that point because I realized that I really was different from everybody else. Uh, I was about uh, maybe 14 when I was placed into a special ed class because my reading skills were real low. David is also a high school student here in Chicago. He's also 18. Um, when, I was, when I was placed into the special ed program, you know, at first I felt sad and lonely. For me, man, like, I was like a slow person that had problems learning, like, mentally problems. Today in our program, stories of people who were told that they're different, some who were comfortable with that, some who did not understand it, some who understood it and did not like it. We bring you stories of the developmentally disabled. It is a very different kind of show for us, with voices and stories that usually do not make it to the radio. 
from WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our show today in three acts. Act one, get on the mic, in which we hear the story of what happens when you hand microphones to developmentally disabled people of various sorts and then send them out with camera crews to interview anyone they want on the streets of America. One thing that turns out to be on the minds of the disabled, same thing that's on your mind and mine, TV. Act two, Black Hole Sun. In that story, we hear from a mother and her son who at three became mesmerized with black holes and Stephen Hawking, an obsession which gave way to bunnies and flowers. Act three, walk out. Veronica Shader tells the story of her own brother, Vincent, who one day quit his job at an assistant learning center and then quit everything else, mystifying everybody in his life. Stay with us. Ekwon, get on the mic. Here's a typical moment from the film How's Your News. The film is a documentary in which five developmentally disabled people travel across America in an RV, interviewing people they meet along the way. When they get to Texas, one of the reporters, Sue Harrington, is at a cattle auction, talking to an auctioneer, an older guy wearing a cowboy hat. There's all sorts of talk about prices and cows. And then Sue, apropos of absolutely nothing, comes out with this question. Sir, have you lately um, read any good books or seen any good movies that you can recommend to us? No, I haven't read any good books lately. Um, I can't remember the name of the movie I saw the other day. Uh, I saw A Message in the Bottle. That was a daggum good movie, I thought. Kind of a tearjerker. Oh, really? Really? It's a good one? You know, that's the first good review I've heard for that one. Well... I'm kind of sentimental. I cried no yeller, too. The How's Your News team has an uncanny knack for bringing the sentimental out of people they meet. Arthur Bradford led the How's Your News team across the country. He first got to know them in 1993 at a camp for disabled adults called Camp Jabberwocky. He was a counselor there, teaching a video class. And as part of the class, he would take the campers out to do man-on-the-street interviews. They did that for a few summers and then decided that it might be exciting and fun to try to do their interviews on a two-week cross-country trip, which became this movie. Arthur says that from the start, it's been interesting to see how people react to the disabled reporters. What I've noticed is that when someone with a disability approaches someone on the street, this is without a camera or anything, that person um, sort of settles into, okay, I need to sort of, I, I guess, basically talk down to this person sort of like they're talking to a child I would say yeah but I what I like about when you give them a microphone and a camera is is that suddenly the people um take them a little more seriously and uh I would say they they maybe give them a little more respect hello my, my name is Ronnie I'm from how's your news what, what's your name sir Curtis Curtis who Salisbury uh, what do you do Curtis I work for the post office yeah, tell, tell us about the post office. Post office is a good place to work. Yeah, yeah, I, I get my mail there at the post office. I love getting mail. Have you met any famous people? Mm, no. This reporter, Ron Simonson, asked nearly everybody who he interviews if they've met any famous people, especially if they've met Chad Everett. He used to star in Medical Center. Ron is a big Chad Everett fan and wears a homemade Chad Everett sweatshirt through parts of the film. Here's Ron interviewing a woman in Las Vegas. Ronnie Simonson reporting from Las Vegas. Today, I'm with the fabulous singer Jennifer Holloway. Tell me, Jennifer, how does it feel to be a singer? Fabulous. I enjoy it. 
Have you met any famous people? Or? Yes, oh. I have. Tanya Tucker, I met. Have you met Chad Everett? No, I have not. You know who he is. Yes, yes, yes I, do. I do an impersonation of Chad Everett. Well, let's see it. Hi, this is Chad Everett. Okay. You got quite class, lady. My, my name is Chad Everett. No, I was the star of Medical Center. There are moments during House Your News when things happen that in another movie might seem like they're mocking the people on camera. But in this context, they don't. Partially because it's clear how well the filmmakers know the reporters and love them. There were counselors and campers together in the RV who've known each other for years, taking a road trip. Two of the reporters, Sean and Bobby, have Down syndrome. Larry has a condition called spastic cerebral palsy. The two most talkative reporters, Ron, who has cerebral palsy, and Sue, who has a mental disability, came into a studio to talk about the film. They brought along a guitarist, Chad Ermstone, one of their counselors, to play some of the songs in the film. I began by asking Ron what his thing for Chad Everett is all about. It turns out Ron has been a fan ever since he was a kid, back when he was spending a lot of time in and out of hospitals, and Chad Everett was playing a doctor on TV. My mother and I wrote a letter to Chad Everett. My mother wrote a letter to him, and I dictated, and I named every, everything he had been in, not just medical center, but everything, the Roustas, uh, Hagen, uh, every show that he was on. And he wrote me a note. He said, life's not meant to be on reruns. He said, God bless your life. Watch the new love boat, Chad. Watch the new love boat? Is is Chad Everett on the new love boat? Well, he was a guest star on He was a guest star. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I'm a guest star on your show. He was a guest star on, on that show. I see. Oh, yeah. I want to tell him how we went to the set of General Hospital. Can I tell him that? I went to the set of General Hospital. What was that like? Oh, it, it, that was exciting, wasn't it, Arthur? You want to get in there? Yep, that that was uh, that was that was very exciting. We we went to the set of General Hospital when we were in Los Angeles, and, and I um I walked in that studio there, and, and the guy said, "What the hell are you doing here?" And I said, "I was a colleague of Monica Quartermain's. I I was a cardiac surgeon, not really, but but pretend I was a colleague of hers." Right? Did he laugh? He laughed. He laughed. Thought that was funny. <laughs> Thought that was really funny, hilarious. So yeah. This- there's something about it. I, I just when we were the whole way across the country, and then and then going to General Hospital. It, when you when you travel with someone like Ron, who's who is so excited about certain things, it, he something about his enthusiasm rubs off on everybody else. So, um, for instance, going to General Hospital instead of General Hospital by myself, I'm not sure I would I would be so excited, but. With Ron, the whole way there, as we got closer and closer to General Hospital, he started clapping his hands and rocking back and forth. And, his, yeah. and you were just so excited about yeah, going, going to General Hospital. I was, because I wanted to see Leslie Charleston. And we're going to go back there again in California. Maybe I'll see you again then. Well, let's let Chad come in, and let's, let's, uh, let's, let's have you sing. Are we ready, Chad? Okay, guys. All right, let's do it. This is, once we introduce this. This is today. Uh, we're singing my favorite state, California. Well, we went to the set of California, all, all my celebrity friends, and I'm going to sing it now for you, Ira. Um, all right. Ready? One, okay. two, three. You'll never, never know. You'll never Wait 
got to hold her, her daytime Emmy, her daytime Emmy at General Hospital in California. Susan Harrington. Hi, hi, would you like to be interviewed? Hi, can I interview you for How's Your News? Hey, Sue. Yes. I've often been in, in the situation where I have to walk up to a stranger on the street with a microphone and a tape recorder. And uh-huh. I always get a little nervous. Do you get nervous? Well, um, you can't. I mean, you can't do something like this and not have a little bit of nerves and butterflies in the stomach. Come on. Do you find that it's hard sometimes getting people to talk to you? Yes. Sometimes it is hard because there are people who just, like, will not talk to us. They're like, no way. When we were at the camp, uh, I think we chose the reporters for How's Your News, especially because they seem to be... um, especially undaunted about going up to strangers and talking to them. In fact, if you were to see Sue in a crowd without a microphone, she just likes to go up to strangers and talk to them. Like, for example, a perfect example is this, in the film, there's somebody, um, and I'm interviewing this Mr. J- John B. Porterfield, and he, he was very difficult to talk to. I should say, that interview happens in an alley in what looks like a kind of sketchy part of town, and Sue is visibly uh, a little nervous. Sir, good evening. Um, Susan Harrington from How's Your News. And we'd just like to ask you a few questions tonight. Okay. Um, sir, what is your name? John B. Porterfield. Um, do you, I am a combat war hero, and I'm living on the streets like a dog. Are there times, Arthur, where you're looking through the camera at, at, at a moment like that where you feel um, scared for them? Yeah, there were a lot of times where I'm sitting there watching and I'm thinking, I don't want anything to go wrong. I feel very protective. I was always worried about the explosion where someone would just be like, what the hell are you doing here? I don't want to talk to this person. And so in that particular interview, I, I was a little nervous. What I'm asking you is, for those of I'm I'm from out of state. So is there anything, I mean, do you think there's anything we should see here that, you know, that you've seen and you've liked? I don't like this town. I'm going to tell you that right now. I've been beat up. I've been... I just want to forget it. Arthur, there are a lot of moments in the, in the film where it seems like the reporters are standing there and they're not exactly sure what to say next or what to ask next. Why not give them questions? Um, well, I mean, we tried that. We tried um, making lists of questions for them to ask, and um, it just didn't work. It was so clear that they were just asking questions that had been given to them that 
um, there wasn't really anything very interesting about that. In fact, it, it came off as um, as a little bit uh, as a little bit wrong. You know, like yeah, I think you know everyone always asks about um, are you worried about this coming across as exploitation? And, and of course, of, of course, I am, and and we all were. Um, so we had to figure out what what was and what wasn't appropriate and uh ultimately i really felt strongly that the questions needed to be coming from them my, my name is ronnie simonson i'm i, I i'm from how's your news uh this is a guy what's he's sitting on a music? truck um it's about halfway uh, across the country roll. what's your favorite who's your favorite singer uh i like boston what does it say please come to boston the name of the song yeah, I believe it. One of them is, yeah. Want me to sing it with you? Huh? Want me to sing it with you? Nah, Please come to Boston in the springtime. Saran, you do such a nice job with this guy. You know, it doesn't seem like he's all that interested in talking. And then you find stuff to talk to him about where, where it seems like he actually cares about it. Well, yeah. I had to do something... <laughs> to make him happy and to make me happy. I couldn't just sit there and say, hey, sorry, pal. Can you sing? No, I can't sing. Can you act? No. Uh, what can you do? What do you like to do? You must have some hobby you like to do. Yeah, I like to ride a motorcycle. Yeah, what, what does it make you feel like when you ride a motorcycle? Does it make you feel like the Fonz? Yeah, sort of. Do you like the Fonz? Yeah, do you? Uh, yeah, what, what do you mean doing in Personation with the fawns. I could act it out with you, pretend we're driving a motorcycle. Not really, just but just role play. Hey, I'm the fawns. I'm I'm riding a motorcycle. Want to ride a motorcycle with me? Yeah, might as well. Come on, come. Rim, 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 rim. You all bring out a really nice side of people. Well, yeah. Yeah. It, it all depends on the people. Where, where are you from? I'm New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Yeah, we're traveling across country. We're going to, we're going to California. Huh? You like doing that? Sure. It's my it's my biggest dream. What's your what's your biggest dream? I don't know. You must have something. You can't have anything if you don't have anything, right? Yeah. I had never thought too much about it. Okay. One of the facts of life for many disabled adults is that they don't get around that much. Many live in group homes. Most of their contact is with other disabled people. They don't go around talking to able-bodied strangers. For most of the How's Your News team, this was the first time traveling across the country. This was the first time traveling without their families so far from home for so long. And in the months since the film was finished and shown on television, the whole How's Your News team has flown to Europe and Canada and around the United States when the film has been screened at film festivals. At those screenings, they bring a band. They perform their songs live on stage. And it pretty much brings the house down. People love them. Interviews with Sue and Ron, I kept asking them what all of this was like, how their lives had changed. I have to say, every time that I asked this, they were pretty nonchalant about it all, very low-key. Here's Ron, for instance. Oh, it's good. It's very good, and I I felt really honored and blessed. In a separate interview with Arthur, I asked him about their reactions to these kinds of questions. Yeah, it's funny because because uh, Ron, who is so celebrity-obsessed, often gets asked... Um, how does it feel to be a celebrity now? And he just brushes that question off. Um, <laughs> you know, they've lived their lives. They're all 35, 40, 
I don't think that this process is, is going to actually radically change them. Um, for some reason, it seems like they just always expected that this would happen, that someone would, would pick them up and drive them across the country to make a movie. Wow. Um, I, I don't know. I, 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 that, sound, that sounds weird, but if you ask them, they all, they're all kind of like, yeah, this is, this is the way it was supposed to be. Hmm. And uh, they took it all, all in stride. I mean, I think that I think as, as sort of filmmakers and, and American TV viewers, we, we want there to be this big, like, Olympic moment where, where they're just like, ta-da, I feel so great, my life has so changed. But I, and I do think that they had, they had a wonderful time on this trip, but they, they didn't, and I, and I actually kind of like it. They didn't, they didn't kind of freak out and, 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 uh, and um, start weeping on camera or anything like that. Like what you're making me realize is that is that my my instinct in asking you the, even this, this this particular set of questions about this is is um, suddenly seeming very wrong headed. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I I I just didn't want this to be that one of those disability documentaries where where you, the music starts soaring and 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 everybody without a disability feels so good because they have helped these people by understanding them. Right. Um, so, but I do think you know the final scene in the movie is we all go swimming at the beach in the in the Pacific Ocean um, in Venice Beach in California, and I do think there's a certain there's a certain beauty to that, and they and they were kind of whooping it up, and 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 honestly, like when we were swimming in that beach, we were all there. We we had made it across the country. We were we were exhausted, um, but there was a real feeling of accomplishment. The sun was setting, and I really felt this feeling of yes we have we have done something here we we set out to do it we made it across the country i have to say i have to stop you there because i feel like we're getting to that big moment that you're trying <laughs> to avoid in the film <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know i guess it's uh i guess that's true arthur bradford with sue harrington and ron simonson from how's your news the movie aired on cinemax and at film festivals you can order your own dvd of the film at howsyournews.com chad here we go one Three. The Grand Canyon was carved by the Colorado River. I learned this in history class. This is really an amazing thing because we are about to make some history of our own as we have arrived at one of the seven wonders of the world. Yet another three-year-old fan of physicist Stephen Hawking, and Vinny drops out, assembly line not required. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on a program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that topic. Today's program, special ed, stories of developmentally disabled people. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Black Hole Sun. Because of a rare genetic disease, Sam was born with holes in several vital organs, including his heart and his brain. For his first five years, if one wasn't making his life hell, the other was. He's seven now, and recently his mom and he sat down together to talk about how things used to be and how they got much, much better. Okay. So, let me start interviewing you. Can you describe yourself? What kind of a person are you? A nice and kindful person. You're kindful? Yes, and playful. What do you do that's nice? Um... Hug you. When I was pregnant with Sam, um, the first ultrasound came back that there was something wrong. I was thinking, just please let it be something with his body, not with his brain. I can handle his body, but um, I just, I'll be a bad mom to a retarded child. I just, everybody has their their thing they can't take and that's it for me so when Sam was born uh, when he was five days old he had uh, heart failure and so then we learned about the deletion in the in the chromosome velocardiofacial syndrome Um, so we didn't know if he was gonna make it and we had um, a talk with a geneticist and he said if you you know give him the operations it's not sure he'll pull through, but if he does, um, he's he's going to be retarded probably. And um, I said, I said, okay, you know, I don't care anymore. I just, I want him, and and I need him. What were you like when you were three years old? I was walking, but I was crying too. Do you want to talk about what you used to be like? No way. He started torturing animals when he was three and talking all the time about wanting to die. And um, he stabbed his stepfather with a plastic knife and drew blood and um, poured boiling water on me, wiped wiped things on the bus that should not be, not be wiped. <laughs> Um, he was kicked out of school when he was four because they said he was a danger to himself and, and others. And so we took him to a psych unit and he was studied for a few days. And that's when they told us about the, the bipolar, rapid cycling bipolar, which is common in, in, in v- velocardiofacial syndrome. Um, it has early onset and it hits you hard a lot of the time. Sometimes it doesn't, but it did in <laughs> him, but nobody told me that. I want to show you a drawing that you did. That's me with heart faces and, and heart eyes. There's about a hundred hearts in your face in this drawing green yeah green hearts how come 
What were you feeling when you drew this? I feel like hugging you and kissing you and giving you cards. All your drawings now have a lot of hearts and flowers and birds and people are smiling. Do you remember when you were about four years old, do you remember what you drew all the time? What? Black holes? Yeah. Do you, do you know what, do you know what you were feeling when you were drawing black holes every day? Like the black hole was sucking the whole world up mm -hmm. and making everybody die and end the world. Yeah, did you feel like that a lot? Like everybody was going to die? Yeah. I think the first time Sam heard of a black hole, he was almost four. And we were watching um, Stephen Hawking, a show. He, at, at that time, he couldn't sit down for anything. He couldn't sit down for a 15-minute cartoon. But he was really into space. And this was the only time he sat down and he watched the boring show from start to finish. They had, um, I think it was like a 50s cartoon of a black hole on just for a second. Uh, you know, one of those uh, swirly things that just captivated him. He started drawing it all the time. And every family portrait would be us and the black hole. At school, they had this uh, rainbow bear notebook, and it would have all the kids' drawings in there. And there would be, like, 19 drawings of, like, of kids going sledding, kids going um, to McDonald's, kids uh, playing with their siblings or something. And then on Sam's page, it would be, a, a black hole destroying the universe or um, a black hole coming down the, the railroad tracks sucking up humans. It's just, <laughs> I, I kind of, I was kind of proud of his differentness and his imagination. But at the same time, I knew that it was like this horror to him. What are some nightmares you've had? The moon, blowing moon. The moon blows on you? Yeah. How come? I think a bad cock that time. Only bad thoughts. You had bad thoughts and that's yeah. why the moon blew on you? Yeah. Did the moon know you had bad thoughts? Yeah. What did it what would happen when the moon blew on you? I was scared. And frightening. And you had that nightmare a lot, I think. For Two times? No, like a whole year you had that nightmare. Before the black, before he discovered black holes, it was any swirling thing that sucks you in. Like, um, even when he was months old, if he saw a ceiling fan, he would just, it was the only time he would quiet. He would just stare into that ceiling fan. I know a lot of babies do, but he just was obsessed. And then, uh, when he was three, he had an imaginary friend, but it wasn't a boy, it was a fan. But this one was called Bad Bad Fan, and it, its blades were teeth, and then it had these little tiny eyes and these little tiny feet at the bottom, and it would kill people. It would just blow on people, and that would kill him because his breath was filled with teeth. And, uh... You know, sometimes when he broke things, he said, bad, bad fan did it. And it, 
it's kind of creepy, you know? It was just me and him <laughs> living in the house, and... Uh, you know, you start thinking... <laughs> oh. He, he had to destroy all day long. He had, he had to. He, could, he couldn't not. He destroyed his favorite toys. He destroyed my favorite furniture. Anything that meant anything, especially. And I used to watch uh, Sally Jesse Raphael shows or, or whoever it was that had all those shows about the out of control. I think it was Montel. Had all the shows about the out of control really young children and the parents had to lock the door against them at night and they lived in fear and supposedly nobody could help and um, I would always think you must be really bad parents you know you I would never have a problem controlling my kid I would teach them how to act and and uh, I've I'd had your kid for a week he'd shape up and so uh, of course I was once I became afraid my child, I didn't tell anyone because I thought they would think the same thing about me. And I kind of thought the same thing about me. You know, he'd be nice and normal and then... and just do something so horrible and senseless. And it seemed like that to Sam, too. You know, he could never understand. He'd do something like... um, try to break the cat's leg something like that, and, and then immediately afterwards he'd be crying and saying, I don't know why I did that, and he would be just as angry and sad as I was, and he'd say, I don't understand, and he'd start punching himself and, and, and biting himself and putting bruises all over his body. Ugh. Oh, that was a horrible life. <laughs> Do you know why you take um the pills every day? Um, cause my brain is all like that. What What is that? Nobody can see on a recorder. Um, describe it. It's a wild, and it has to. It's pumping blood all wild. Pumping blood all wild. Yeah. He started on a drug called Zyprexa. And within 24 hours, we noticed a change. And then about after about 56 hours, it was like night and day. This was not, not the same kid at all. It's hard to believe that we were all living like, like we were. I mean, I can't, I can't believe it. When I sit here and talk about it, I can't believe that that, that existed and I didn't try to get a, a diagnosis earlier. I just kept on thinking I could I could not be such a bad parent and it would get cured or I don't know what I thought. But I, within within two days after starting on the Zyprexa, we would go out. We could go to do three errands in one day. He could wait in line. He was doing well in school. I mean, it didn't happen overnight because he still had some bad memories but you know he he started to 
he started to get some nice memories to put on top of the bad ones and he just got nicer and nicer and happier and sweeter he stopped having nightmares first he, it, at first he would ask me when his brain was going to be messed up again but um now he he feels like it's his brain you know he doesn't it, he feels he feels like he's in control of his own brain. Do you have any girlfriends? Yeah, only one. Who is it? Rose. Aww. Tell me about Rose. She's kind and cute. What does she look like? I forget. <laughs> She looks kind of like her mom, maybe. Would you like to be married? Yeah. I would like to be. What is marrying like? That you have a bride. And you were giving them flowers and heart and Valentine's stuff. When I was doing these interviews with him, I realized something about him that I hadn't seen before, um, which is, you know, all, all those hearts and bunnies and rainbows that he talks about all the time, it's, it's not because he's uh, silly. It's because he's been through more pain and powerlessness than most people ever will in their whole life. And, and I think he... He took all that information about life, about what it, what it is, what it means for him to be alive, and he made an informed decision that he's going to be happy with the good parts of life, and he's going to spread them around. I, I think he knows something about hearts and bunnies and rainbows. He's not like Forrest Gump, you know? It's not like... It, it all came out of something very hard, and he... He has a very strong will. Let's make up a story about a bad boy. Dinosaur boy? Sure. No. That scare people out. That would scare people listening? Yeah. Let's make up a story about a human boy. What would he do in the day? Um. Give it is how fits. And then he would, he would just go his bowl and then he would spill it like that. Push his bowl of food away and spill it? Yeah. What else? Um, break the bowl. And his mom will say, you have to clean it up. And after that, you have to go right up to your room. What would the boy be thinking? Um... That he wants to be a nice boy. And when he came back downstairs, he hugged everyone in the world. The end. Wow, that bad boy turned out to be a good boy. Do you know anyone like that? No, this fake. The mother who put that story together asked that we not broadcast her and her son's name.
Act three, walk out. Sun Kim has taught severely autistic children for the past five years. She says autistic kids in general tend to not understand social cues and that her students, because of the severity of their autism, can't tell her their basic needs or thoughts. And so she finds she spends a lot of her workday trying to figure out what it is that they're thinking. And often she's stumped. Sometimes you'll just see them looking off in the distance and laughing. Think, what are they laughing about? What's so funny? Or um, when we ask them to do certain things like, you know, um, pass out the placemats or pass out the cups, what's going through their head process like? Okay, I'm supposed to do this, and I don't. Or are they hearing just murmur, murmur, murmur verbiage, and not really understanding, or just listening to the tonalities of what we're saying? Believe me, I've wanted to be inside their head just to know what they're thinking or feeling so many times. <laughs> this question, of course, was part of our story in Act Two, and it's at the heart of this next story. It's at the center of what it means to deal with certain kinds of people with developmental disabilities. Veronica Shader's younger brother Vincent can't do math even the simplest addition. He doesn't speak well. He has a version of what used to be called mental retardation, but when he was a baby and doctors tried to diagnose him, they couldn't find anyone else with his particular combination of symptoms, and so they named his own syndrome after him, the Vincent syndrome. He's an adult now and for a while seemed to be doing just fine, until a point a few years ago when he surprised everybody in the family by quitting his job and then quitting everything else in his life. And it was not clear to them why he did it and what it meant and what it would mean for his future. Veronica Shader put together this story. Ever since Vincent quit his job, he's spent more and more time alone in his room. At Christmas, at our parents' house in Northern California, my brothers and sisters and I weave in and out of the kitchen, talking about work, telling jokes, and taking orders from Mom. There are 11 of us. I'm the second oldest. Vinny's the fifth. As usual, he's nowhere to be seen. When I go down the hall, I find him in his bedroom, with the door closed, drinking an orange soda from the can, and watching an old movie. You've been very dear to me, Edgar. Very dear. His face is close to the TV screen, about ten inches away, and he has a serious expression, the kind you'd catch on a detective who's trying to crack a case. He could be 18, and he could be 50. You can't quite tell. He has a short little boy haircut, and every day he wears a sweatshirt with the words Carpe Diem on it. The truth is, he's 34. Did Santa come and fill your stocking? Indeed. What did you get in your stocking? Envelopes, dress book. Jamaroonie. Some Jamaroonies? Vinny still lives in his childhood bedroom, which he calls his apartment. Ever since he retired, bit by bit, he's been withdrawing into his own little world. A world that doesn't include me or anyone else. Okay, here we go. Clean up. My mom and dad still take care of Vinny, but it's mainly my mom's job. Clean you, clean you. Save you, save you. My parents, who are devout Roman Catholics, were undaunted by the idea of having a so-called special needs child. They figured it was part of God's plan. He was an angel in our midst, as my dad always said. They refused to think of him as a burden, even though he would depend on them for the rest of their lives. Every morning, my mom readies him for the day, combing and gelling his hair, brushing his teeth, and shaving him. She tilts his chin this way and that, handling him like a barber with an overbooked schedule. Done. All spiffed up for the day. Okay, here. 
Here we go. Put your shaver away, okay? There are all sorts of little games that Vinny and my yeah. mom play together all day long. Okay. Most of them are impenetrable to outsiders. He'll say, repeat, repeat, and she'll reply, re-deep in the re-deep, and they'll both giggle. Okay, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you. I want to see if you know any movies, because you're always the one that knows movies. Okay. Who said this? Um, who's the one that sucked his thumb and said, Mommy! The cartoon Robin Hood. Right! I wonder how you got that one. I didn't know you were going to get that. Despite his disability, Vinny has a really good memory for all sorts of trivia. Quizzing him about movies is the impromptu game my mom and dad play with him throughout the day from morning till night. Okay, I got one for you, Vincent. See if you can get this one. Hitch was up Monday, ain't gonna soldier no more. The bond between them is more than a bond. It's a union for life. As Vinny passed through his teenage years and became an adult, Mom saw to it that he was kept busy. She signed him up for bowling, for Special Olympics, and for pretty much every seasonal sport, from basketball to badminton. But as he got older, Vinny's personality grew darker and more mysterious. I didn't notice it right away. I don't think any of us did. Mom was so good at keeping Vinny distracted from himself that it didn't seem like a problem. But two years ago, it grew too large to ignore. Let's play games. I'm not playing games right now. Go get my sour cream. Come on. I want the sour cream. I can't make those Chantilly potatoes without it. Every time I go home, it hits me a little bit more that even though Vincent and I are about the same age, my mom talks to him like he's a precocious four-year-old. And more and more, I've noticed that he's aware of it, too. When he returned without the sour cream and noticed that Mom and I were talking about him, he got upset. There's a wonderful reaction to talk about somebody when you talk about me. I, I talked right in front of you. I wasn't telling any secrets. I'm going to say what I'm going to say because it's true. Nothing wrong with having the truth, is there? I'll put this where it's You put it where it goes, top shelf, the little slot, slide it in there. Thank you very much. No. You can go for one minute to... to yeah. Oh, yeah. Dad's so afraid he's going to get him angry, he won't give him any orders. I have to do all the orders. Yeah. yeah. If he wants to get smart with me and I say, God said you have to obey your parents, I'm your mother, you do what I say, when I say, and he'll do something sometimes. So you go in and you tell God you're sorry for that. He'll go in his room and he comes out. Sorry for talking like that. I said, that's fine, Ben. Okay. We just don't do that. Then he gets in a really good mood after that. It might seem like my mom is rough on Vinny, but I have to say that her way of dealing with him has pretty much worked out for the best, until the day Vinny decided to retire. When he quit his job, Vinny dropped everything, including bowling, basketball, and the Special Olympics. Where once he was busy from dawn till dusk, now he had nothing to do. So he began sleeping to pass the time, up to 18 hours a day. It worried all of us, especially Mom. He was sleeping his life away, and we didn't understand why. It felt like we were losing him, like he was giving up. So I set out to figure out why. If you ask Vinny about why he quit his job, you don't get much of an answer. In general, it's hard to get a direct response out of him on any subject. Could be, he'll say, or maybe. It's not clear he even knows what his own feelings are sometimes. 
Often when any of us asks him about his job, he'll just change the subject, like he did when I asked him about it sitting in Mom's kitchen. How come you don't just tell me why you quit? Mysteriously, it might be an empty uh, blank there after you were saying something. You mean you're leaving that section blank because you don't want to fill it in with words? Blank is there before I finish words. Are you playing word games with me now? No. We've all asked Vinny dozens of times in dozens of different ways why he quit his job and everything else, and every time his answer is just as cryptic. And so we're all forced to guess what the real reasons are. My mom's best guess is that Vinny put himself into early retirement and started all these dark moods because of a chemical change in his brain. The psychologist said he thinks there was a chemical imbalance that took place suddenly in his brain and he and he prescribed Prozac for him. No. It's all chemical. I don't know. It it's really a mystery to me what happened there. Vinny had worked for 12 years at a place called Concord Support Services, a company that hires mentally retarded adults and vocationally trains them. Vinny always told me that he liked his job. He'd sit in a big warehouse with about 70 other disabled adults doing light assembly or stuffing envelopes. He made up to $60 a month, which to him was an infinite amount of money. We all assumed he'd found his place in the world. Then, gradually, he started to become impatient and angry at work, threatening to break people's fingers if they touched him. He started disappearing into the work bathroom for up to an hour at a time, just to get away from people. It was pretty clear that he was in a crisis. On his last day, he was wandering around looking for a bead he'd dropped. His supervisor asked him what he was doing. One thing led to another. Vinny lost his temper. My parents were called in for a meeting, and Vinny quit, just up and walked out. A few months ago, I asked Vinny if he'd like to go back to his old job for a visit, hoping it might spark something. I wasn't sure how he'd react, but he didn't even hesitate. He told me that he'd love to go. So the next morning, after my mom spiffed him up, we drove the route he'd taken for 12 years. When we arrive at the front doors, he's all smiles. He seems genuinely glad to be there. Hi. I remember you. You do? Nice to see you. But as we approach the warehouse floor where Vinny used to work, his pace slows. At the warehouse door, he hesitates and purses his lips together. Hi. How are you? Wonderful. Hi, nice to see you. you. He becomes shy and looks confused as one person after another comes up to him. Some touch him fondly. One man blows in his face and everyone stares. Vinny tries to appear cool, but I can tell he's tense. We miss you, Vinny. We missed a Vinny on him we knew. We missed you, Vinny. We missed you. Would you like to begin basketball practice Saturday? I don't know. I'm not into... I'm back into bowling and running again. We hang out, and Vinny looks uncomfortable, except when he decides on his own to busy himself cleaning and straightening. After 15 minutes, he disappears into the bathroom, his old hiding place. After a while, he comes out for a few minutes, 
then goes back in, and then comes back out again. When he heads back into the bathroom for the third time, I know it's time to leave. Later, I talk to my brother Danny about it. Of all my siblings, Danny spends the most time with Vinny. They go to movies, take walks, go to bookstores. Danny thinks Vinny might have quit his job for all the normal reasons any of us quit a job. Maybe it had nothing to do with his disability. I think um, he was probably extremely bored working in this place, doing the same thing over and over again. Stuffing envelopes, um, putting paper clips in bags. There was no challenge to it, and I think it really frustrated him. Vinny might have simply had enough, enough of other people controlling his life. All the adults in his life were doing the sensible things you do for disabled people, giving structure to his days, coaxing his moods, all with the best intentions. It's possible that in the end, that wasn't enough of a life. And so one day, he changed the one thing in his life that he could. He said no to the one thing he could say no to, and quit his job, and then quit everything else. Um, being told what to do constantly, day in and day out, and he watches his other brothers and sisters running around and traveling and having their freedom, and, and here he is stuck at home in his room. I can just imagine how frustrating that would be. It would make me angry if I was in that situation. After Vinny retired, my mom and dad were determined to get him back into some kind of routine. After meeting with all sorts of social workers and suggesting dozens of ideas to Vinny, they finally came up with something that he agreed to. They hired my brother Bernard to build a chicken coop in the backyard and to put Vinny in charge of a miniature chicken farm. My mom had always wanted a chicken farm anyway. This was her big chance to get one. Vinny took to every aspect of chicken farming. He was painstakingly mindful of the chicken's daily schedule of free-range feeding and lockup, and he was especially fastidious about coop hygiene. But more than that, to everyone's surprise, he started participating in activities again. He started basketball practice, and he's training again for the Special Olympics. Molly, Polly, Dinette, Money here. Pretty much at any time of the day, you can see Vinny standing as still as a marble sculpture in the backyard beside the coop, his eyes half-closed and his palms cupping the breeze, thinking, or just listening to the sound of his hens. He named them after old friends and talks to them like children. Veronica Shader lives in Berkeley, California. She has a memoir coming out about her family next spring called Waiting for the Apocalypse.
This cover of 9 to 5 was recorded in 1985. It's the Hammond State School Performing Group in Louisiana. They are developmentally disabled kids in a music therapy program. Our show today was produced by Jonathan Goldstein and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Wendy Doran, and Starley Kine. Senior producers, Julie Snyder. Production up from Todd Bachman and Maria Schell. Special thanks today to Jeff Melman, Butch Melman, Cheryl Wagner, Gabriel Spitzer, Ed Burke at the Consortium of Developmental Disabilities Council, James Pippick at WGBH, Jamie Hodge, Karen Melberg, Schweier, David Hinsberger, Natalie Trujillo, Patrick Murray, and Rich Bertoli. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can get our free weekly podcast or listen to old shows online for free. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is brought to you by Volkswagen. When you get into a Volkswagen, it gets into you. And by Fox Searchlight, presenting Once, a tale of two kindred spirits making music and finding romance on the bustling streets of Dublin, now playing in select theaters. And support for This American Life is provided by Showtime, offering season one of the This American Life television show, now available for download. Information on where to download at sho.com or thisamericanlife.org. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who has this message for America. God bless your life. Watch the new love book. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI Public Radio International.